Speaking of uh, appreciation, I just want to say how grateful I am for Lewis Miller being here with us last week and uh, challenging us to trust in God. We're in a series called uh, He is Greater Than Fear, and we're going to be jumping back into the gospel of Mark this week. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn uh, to Mark 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The verses will be on the screen. And if you are new uh, here uh, or maybe you're watching online for the first time, I just want to say to you how glad we are to have you with us. And we don't want you to just sit in a chair and listen. We want to know you and we would love to help you get involved in the life of this church. Uh, You can text the word connect uh, to the number that is on the screen. Uh, and one of our staff members will follow up with you this week, and we'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have. You can also stop by one of the welcome tents on your way out and uh, talk to our team there, and they'd be happy to learn, help you learn how you can get connected to our church. Um, as a reminder, we've been reading about the ministry of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus shifted in the last verses we read two weeks ago as he sends the disciples out to do ministry. And we'll soon hear more about their ministry, and we'll see Jesus. Jesus continued to minister with them and teach them and send them out. But Mark breaks from the story here and inserts what appears to be a quick rabbit trail. If you're reading through the Gospel of Mark for the first time and you come across these verses, then you likely think, why is this right here? And my goal for today is to show you why it is here. Now, Vincent Taylor says that what Mark is doing is he's setting up context for why Jesus would be crucified. So by knowing kind of the environment in which Jesus, the background in which Jesus is ministering, we understand why he eventually is crucified. But it's much more than that. Uh, the reason that Mark put this here. And I believe that what we will understand is how this really reinforces that he is indeed greater than fear. So let's walk through this text to help us understand who we are reading about and what we are reading. And then I think there are three insights for us regarding the world we live in and the people we interact with. So I'll I'll begin in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So we have an image here of Herod's family tree so that you understand uh, who this Herod is that we're talking about. Herod the Great reigned uh, for almost, uh, you know, for a long time. And uh, he had uh, several wives and he had several sons. And if you look on the right of this, he has a wife, Malthace, and under there he has two sons, Herod Archelaus and Herod Antipas. And this is Antipas that we are reading about here in Mark chapter 6. His kingdom was divided amongst uh, Archelaus and Philip and Antipas. And uh, this Herod is the the leader of the government, excuse me, the ruler of the Roman uh, region where Jesus ministered. And this Herod, Herod Antipas, was only 17 whenever his father, Herod the Great, died and he began to rule. And Herod hears about what Jesus is doing. Jesus' name had become known. Now, some people were saying, hey, this is a prophet. Hadn't been a prophet in hundreds of years, but they were anticipating a prophet coming, and so this is a prophet. The Old Testament had alluded to a return of Elijah, and so some had said, this is Elijah. And others were saying, John the Baptist was raised from the dead. And that had particular uh, interest to Herod, verse 16. 
But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod concludes that Jesus must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. He clearly has a troubled conscience about this. And Mark gives, some, gives us some insight into the recent history to help us understand why. Going back to that family tree uh, here, Herodias was, and you can see her on the left, was actually um, at the time, this was Herod's wife at the time of Mark 6, but she was the daughter of Aristobulus, who was the half-brother of Herod Antipas. And she had been married to Herod Philip, son of Herod the Great, and also Herod Antipas's half-brother. So Herodias was Herod Antipas's niece and sister-in-law and now wife. I'll let you decide what southern state you want to make a joke about here. <laughs> so Herod had also divorced his previous wife, causing much conflict in the kingdom. And John, the text implies, condemns Herod for marrying Herodias. And, and Luke actually gives us some very clear insight into that, Luke 3, 18 through 20. So with many other exhortations, he, that's John the Baptist, preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. In Mark's gospel, in chapter 6, verse 18, it says that John the Baptist had been saying, means it was ongoing. He was continually rebuking Herod for what he did. Dr. Edmund Hebert says that Mark's words indicate a personal rebuke of Herod. And Herodias was offended by John's words. And she wanted him dead. But... She could not have him dead because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and therefore he kept him safe. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 5, Matthew tells us, though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So in addition to that, there was the political implications of killing John the Baptist because of the influence that he had. But notice what we learn about Herod from this text. Herod was religiously superstitious. You see, when Herod heard John, he was perplexed. He was curious. He was provoked by what John was teaching. And the text also tells us that Herod heard John gladly. He received what John said with pleasure. But Herod loved Herod. The preacher's outline in Sermon Bible puts it this way. Herod had a guilty conscience because of an inadequate religion. Herod had a sensitive conscience. He was not totally hardened against the truth of righteousness. He kept John alive for a little over a year. He recognized something in John, something that drew him and caused him to want to hear what John had to say. And apparently he even tried to observe and do some of the things John preached. 
How many try to do some of the things the preacher says? However, whatever religious works Herod did, they were inadequate. As every genuine believer knows, religion is never adequate. Only a personal relationship with God suffices and meets the needs of the human soul. Herod was inconsistent, loving the world and its things more than God and his righteousness. And this is a major contribution to what would happen. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, we need to understand the context here. This time, birthdays are pagan celebrations. If you trace the the origin of the celebration of birthdays, the origin of birthdays is actually when the Egyptians celebrated the the birth of pharaohs as gods. So they weren't actually celebrating their birthday, but they were celebrating their birth as gods. And so then the Greeks kind of learned from that, and they incorporated this into their worship of the moon god Artemis. And actually, the candles that we light were originally uh, lit by the Greeks uh, for the god Artemis. And so the Romans then began to take from the Egyptians and from the Greeks and celebrating notable people. And and really, you know, they viewed them almost as deity in some way. And then some people would, would do that for their friends and family and more intimate gatherings. Now, due to its belief that humans are born with original sin and the fact that early birthdays were tied to pagan gods, the Christian church considered birthday celebrations evil for the first few hundred years of of its existence. And it wasn't until around the fourth century that with Roman influence, the majority of Christians changed their minds and began to celebrate the birthday of Jesus as the holiday of Christmas. And this new celebration was accepted into the church, partly in hopes of recruiting those who are already celebrating the Roman holiday at that time. And then eventually personal birthdays followed. So I have six kids in my house, so I've decided I'm going to follow the early church, and birthdays are evil so that we can save some money. Um, So this was a pagan celebration at this time, and so, you know, like a god, Herod would be celebrated for his birth. And so he has this big celebration, and he invites nobles, and he invites commanders, and he invites the leading men of Galilee. The nobles were these people holding, you know, high civil offices, military commanders. That's pretty obvious. It would have been people who had over a thousand men under their command. And then the leading men of Galilee were important social leaders, most of them Jewish. And so they're having this party, celebrating Herod. They're indulging. And at this party, Herod's stepdaughter, Salome, comes in and starts dancing for the guest. This was a form of entertainment. It's obviously somewhat provocative. She was probably about 12 to 14 years old, which is the modern-day equivalent of a college student. Uh, And she's a young woman about to enter marriage age, and she pleased Herod. Her dancing pleased Herod, and Herod, in his intoxication, probably of other things, but certainly of lust, ask, says, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. This is the kind of indulgent, impulsive man Herod was. It's very clear in his complex arrangement of marrying Herodias because he wanted her. And here he is flaunting his wealth and his power, and he says, I will give you whatever I want. He vows to give her up to half of the kingdom. Now, he's under the 
the authority of Rome, so he actually doesn't have the right to give half of his kingdom away. And his audience knew this was somewhat of an exaggeration of saying, hey, I want this, and I'll do whatever I can for this. But she's a stepdaughter, and she goes, and she asks her mom, verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. So Salome is a mama's girl, and mama has a grudge. And mama says, give me the head of John the Baptist. Now, once again, I want to look closely here at what Mark says about Herod. Herod was sorry that this was happening. But Herod didn't want to break his oath or look bad in front of his guest. He's following this weird moral code. And often I've met people who say, I, I'm a man of my word. I have to keep my word. And they're not willing to repent and say, I should have never kept, made that word. I never should have said that. And so they dishonor God in following through with whatever it is they said they were going to do because they have this moral code that they're following. And so Harold follows through. Now, Josephus, the historian, Jewish historian, records the death of John the Baptist as a political move. Herod did likely see John the Baptist's words as a political threat, but this doesn't conflict with what Mark is saying. Mark is giving us a more detailed inside account of what happens, but certainly there are nuances to this, and certainly you could say there are political motivations for this, but here's what happens. Herod, even though he respects John, even though he likes what John has to say, in his moment of impulsiveness and indulgence, tells Salome that he'll give her whatever she wants. She says, I want John the Baptist's head. And so he follows through with remorse and has John the Baptist killed. Now, I believe that there are three things that we can learn from here. I believe the final thing I'm going to share is the ultimate reason that Mark includes this here. But I think there are three things that this text shows us that we need to pay attention to. The first is this. Worldly motivations lead to problems and eventually to death. Worldly motivations lead to problems and eventually to death. Herod Antipas loved Herod Antipas. Herod loved Herod. For Herod, life was about Herod. Life was about his little kingdom. Life was about power. Life was about wealth. Life was about his image. Life was about maintaining respect. Life was about pleasure. It was about the things that he lusted for. And a lot of people live their lives in the same way. Life is about their little kingdoms. We're not a king. We don't have the ability or the means to do some of the things that Harold did. But the measure of our happiness is on the wealth we can accumulate, the possessions that we can acquire, 
the experiences that we can have. And we work hard to be able to do those things. That is what we live for. Life is about our image. Life is about respect. Life is about recognition. And our lives are lived indulgently. We lust for things and we acquire those things. And we may not be able to throw the big feast in the palace that that Herod did, but our life often at restaurants and places we go is about a feast. And we might not be able to arrange Salome to dance for our guests the way that, that Herod did, but on our phones and on our computers, we accomplish the same things with women. And we live our lives for our little kingdom and we do not see it unless someone tells us. But like Herod, what we do is we silence people who we don't want to hear or perhaps have them beheaded. We hear the pastor who communicates God's word or the Bible study teacher who communicates God's word and they're just the messenger, but we leave the church or we discredit what they have to say because we don't want to hear what goes against our love for ourselves. We have a family member who's constantly challenging us to live for God and not to run from God and to turn from our ways and yet we ignore them and we discredit them because we don't want to hear that because we love ourselves. We find new friends when our friends begin to rebuke us for living the way that we live. And our worldly motivations are causing us problems that perhaps we don't even see. And if we have enough wealth and we have enough image, then maybe we're even able to make up for those things. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The ultimate cause, the ultimate destination of living for my little kingdom is eternal death, is eternal separation from God. From all that we understand about Herod, that's his life. He may have used his power in his little kingdom to get what he wanted, to do it his way, to follow his heart in this world, but that ultimately leads to death. Worldly motivations lead to problems and eventually to death. The second thing that I think we need to see, please listen to this, Religious superstition does not solve the problems caused by our worldly motivations. Religious superstition does not solve the problems caused by our worldly motivations. Herod feared John. There was a sense of reverence, a sense of respect, a fear because he perceived John to be a godly man. Herod was perplexed by John. The teachings of John the Baptist caused Herod to think about himself and about his life. And it even tells us that Herod heard John gladly. There were things that John the Baptist said that Herod loved to hear and wanted to be true. And when Herod would eventually have John the Baptist killed, he was sorry for what he did. Now, we may not have the influence and we may not have the means of Herod, but many people stay connected to church, stay connected to religion 
out of fear, out of guilt. Many people know that the teaching that they are hearing from God's word is right, but they are perplexed by it because we would have to change if we were to follow it. We would have to change to apply it. Many people love the music. They love the church people. They love the sermons, but there is no application to their lives. And many of us are sorry and feel guilt for pursuing our fleshly desires, but we still do it. Perhaps in this room and watching online this morning, there are those of you who do not consider yourselves to be very religious people. And what you have in your mind with God is kind of this deal that you have made with God, this arrangement that you have made with God, this code that you follow with God. And you think by living according to this code that you have met, meeting the standard that you have met, you will be good with God. You have decided because you've compared yourself to Hitler and you said, I'm a pretty good person. Listen, the bar is a little low there. And maybe it's a little higher than Hitler, but you're comparing yourself to a standard that isn't holy. The standard that we compare ourselves is not the person on the road that we're next to or the people we live next to or the people we work with or the stories we see on TV or our Facebook feed. The standard that we compare ourselves to is the holiness of God. And we fall short of the holiness of God. And if you have decided that something makes you right with God or some way of living makes you right with God other than what God says makes you right with him, if you've come up with some code, if you're in here and you think you're good with God without ever really asking what does God say, then I want you to understand what that is called. That is called self-righteousness. Any version of righteousness that isn't, defined by God is self-righteousness. And I hope that phrase just helps you to realize how bad that is. And so many would say they're irreligious, but they're following this code. Now, on the other hand, there are those who are religious. Those irreligious still have some kind of superstition about what makes them right with God, but the religious, we can clearly see it. They follow these rituals. They follow these routines. And they think by keeping these rituals, by not doing and by doing and by being regular at whatever it is I do or by going to a certain type of church building or having certain types of experience, that's what makes me right with God. And as Protestants, we might say, you know, well, we're not like, you know, whoever it may be, but many, many think I got to keep these routines and this is what makes me right with God. And we never deal with the issue of our heart. Now, most of us are evangelicals, or at least claim to be evangelicals. We are Southern Baptist. But I would suggest to you that in the same way that irreligious people have their deal with God that actually doesn't make them righteous, and religious people have their routines that actually do not make them righteous, that many evangelicals, Southern Baptist, people of faith, Their life is actually more about, their faith, excuse me, is actually more about heaven and hell than it is about life and death. I would suggest that probably for some of you, your faith is centered around heaven and it's not centered around the kingdom of God. So for you, your faith was when you were younger, 
You were asked the question, do you want to go to heaven or hell when you die? You're not a dummy. So you want to go to heaven. And so you walk the aisle or you pray to prayer and you got baptized because you want to go to heaven. And your faith then, the rest of your faith is just about where you're going one day. When the message of Jesus is the kingdom of God, And there should not be a disconnect between our faith that we place in Christ and the life that we live on this earth. I'm from a family where very few people are Christians, and I've been to several funerals, and I've heard people talk about my family members who've who've died. And often when they talk about heaven, and I'm not exaggerating, it's something like this. Well, now they're up there, watching the NASCAR race in the sky, drinking beer with so-and-so who's already passed away, and Dale Earnhardt's racing in heaven again. Now, that's kind of funny, so you have permission to laugh if you want, but it's really sad. If your faith is centered around heaven, then chances are that you redefine what heaven is. And if your faith is in heaven and not the kingdom, then your faith is in heaven and not Jesus. And it's not heaven without Jesus. I am fully convinced that Paul Sisk, his faith was in Jesus. And he was looking forward to heaven because Jesus is there. And that's why he lived on earth Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, if not, then you're still the king. You're still the queen. And whatever religion you come up with, it won't solve your problems. The gospel tells us that we don't just want to go to heaven, but we confess that Jesus Christ is a Lord And we're saved. That means he's king. He's master. The placement of this passage, again, I said, is kind of hard to understand if you're just reading through this. But Matthew actually helps us to understand a little more about why this is placed where it is. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, it says, after Matthew tells about what Mark just told about, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. That's the disciples of John the Baptist taking the body of John the Baptist and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So Jesus is in Mark chapter 6, sending the disciples out to do the ministry that he's called him to do, and he's continuing to teach, and he's continuing to move forward with what the mission of God is on earth. And yet, now we're given this story that says, hey, John the Baptist, he was killed. And I really believe that this is placed in here to show us that no one can stop God's motivation for Jesus's name to become known. That's the third thing. That's the last thing. No one can stop God's motivation for Jesus's name to become known. It's at this place to show us this, that they came to Jesus and said, hey, you know, John the Baptist, he was killed for his ministry. And Jesus says, keep going, keep moving forward, keep living for the kingdom of God, keep doing what God has called you to do. Because these little kingdoms might come against us, but there is one king that will reign forever and give your life to that. And so they press forward. 
And the disciples follow Jesus. And Jesus is eventually crucified. But Jesus rises from the grave. And the disciples see him alive. And they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel goes into Jerusalem. And the gospel goes into Asia. And the gospel goes into Europe. And eventually the gospel comes to America. And the gospel comes down to the south. And a group of believers come down to Boggy Bayou and plant Damascus Road at Boggy Bayou Baptist Church. And for 11, excuse me, for a for 111 years, the gospel goes forth and men and women believe in Jesus and God works. And I believe that God, as long as he tarries, allows this earth to tarry, will continue to bring the gospel forth. And eventually when this earth fades away and whatever that looks like, we will spend all of eternity realizing that no one can stop the true king's name from being exalted for all of eternity, no matter how wicked and how vile and how indulgent and self-centered they are. And so there is this battle that is going on in you, believer, in this world for your affection, to live for your little kingdom. And then once you realize how insufficient your little kingdom is, there is a battle that is trying to discourage you from giving everything for the king, from living your life for the king. And what I would just encourage you in is if you want to experience the real power of Jesus, join God in the mission of Jesus, and you will see how great, much greater he really is than anything you can fear on this earth. Now, to close, I just feel like the appropriate response is Paul's words, basically in response to the truth that I just explained in Philippians chapter two. So what I'm going to do is I'm gonna read, I should have marked this first. I'm gonna read Galatians, Philippians, okay, Philippians. Um, Philippians 2 um, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5 of Philippians 2 because they're kind of Paul's instruction to us. I think it's our application. And then in worship, I want us to read verses 6 through 11 together. And really just, and if you're not there with me, you don't have to respond and read it with me. That's fine. The verses will be on the screen. But I just want us to worship. Like, I want us to say these words with a realization of the truth of the name of Jesus being exalted forever. So let me read verse one through five and then we'll read verse six together. Philippians chapter two. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's our application. In light of our little kingdom and the realization of the true king and even the oppression and the, uh, the persecution and the opposition to the king. We know who really is king. And so we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, we count others more significant than ourselves. We don't look to our own interests, but we look to the interest of others. This is our mind in Christ Jesus. And here's why. And we read this together, verse six. Read it with me. Who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.